Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. When it comes to the subject of religion, there are many opportunities for discussions. There are many opportunities for debating, differences of opinions, differences about what people believe. There are many opportunities for controversy and for debate when it comes to the subject of religion. When it comes to the Bible, which is used by Jews and Christians in order to define their religion, there are many subjects that exist within the Bible. There are many teachings that people refer to in the Bible. And when it comes to these subjects and it comes to these teachings, there are many different opinions concerning these subjects and teachings. People have different ideas concerning these things. And because of that, people argue with each other. There are disagreements when it comes to various subjects in the Bible. There are disagreements when it comes to the question of how do we live our lives. There are disagreements when it comes to how does our God relate to us in light of what we do or in light of what he has done. And because of these disagreements, there's a lot of controversy when it comes to the subject of Christianity and religion. One of these subjects that people debate over all the time, one of the subjects that there is a lot of disagreement concerning is the subject of baptism. This is definitely a very big subject, a big opportunity for controversy in Christianity today. In fact, it has been a source of great controversy ever since the beginning of the church. Ever since the Lord Jesus died and rose from the dead, the subject of baptism has been a very big subject, a very important subject for many people. And many people have debated this over the last 2,000 years, and it will continue to be a debate. But in this program, and for several programs after this, of course, I am going to address the subject of baptism. I'm going to explain to you the history of baptism, the purpose of baptism, where it came from, how it was used. I'm going to explain the subject of baptism. Now, I want you to know that in addressing this subject, I have great confidence that I will not resolve the controversy. I will not resolve this debate. I will not stop all of the arguments that take place when it comes to this subject. And, of course, the reason why I believe that is because I'm confident that not everyone is going to believe what I am going to say about the subject of baptism. And there are various reasons why people will not believe, and I will address those as I present this series. But what I'm going to do for the next several programs is I'm going to talk about the subject of baptism. This is a very important subject in the Christian world. It is a very important subject and definitely needs some very serious attention. And so I'm going to give this subject that attention and I'm going to describe the history, the purpose, why baptism was instituted, what it was for, how it has been used 
by the living God, and through this I do believe that I will make a significant contribution to this discussion of this issue that is a very important one. Now, when people address the subject of baptism, what people normally do is they start by going into the Bible, they go into the scriptures, they normally start with its first introduction with the baptism of John, and then they walk through the scriptures showing the examples of baptism, and with those examples, they eventually derive conclusions. And I want you to know that this is the most common way of dealing with this subject. But this is not what I'm going to do. I'm not going to do it that way. I'm going to deal with this subject in a very different way. The way that I'm going to approach the subject of baptism is by starting with the history of baptism before John the Baptist. This is very important to understand. You must understand the history of baptism before John the Baptist because if you do not understand why it was instituted, who instituted it, what they instituted it for, and how it was utilized, if you do not understand these things, then when you see John starting to baptize people in the Jordan River, when you see him do that, you are not going to have the proper foundation to understand exactly what was taking place, the statements that he was truly making, and how the people would have understood the baptism that he was presenting. It's very important to understand this, and unfortunately it's very unusual, if not impossible, to find someone who knows that baptism did not start with John the Baptist. But that's the fact. The fact of the matter is that people do not understand is that baptism did not start with John the Baptist. And it's very important to realize this, because if you do not realize this, you're not going to have the proper foundation, the proper historical perspective to understand the framework that existed at this time in history when it came to conversions, when it came to people believing in the living God when they did not believe in him before, or when it came to a person rededicating their lives. This is a very important subject that unfortunately has not been made available to people like it really should be. And so this is what I'm going to do, is I'm going to provide you I'm going to present the history of baptism, and through that, I want you to know that when you understand that, the subject of baptism becomes very simple. You see, right now, the subject is extremely complicated. It's a very big subject. People are asking all kinds of questions when it comes to the subject of baptism. They're asking questions like, what is the proper procedure to be baptized? Are we to be sprinkled or completely submerged? Are we to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, or are we to be baptized in the name of Jesus? Who can baptize another person? What are the proper qualifications that a person needs to have in order to baptize another person? These are the kinds of subjects that people are dealing with. These are the kinds of subjects that people are arguing over. When should you be baptized? Should you be baptized as a baby or should you be baptized as an adult? Are you baptized before you are saved? Are you baptized after you are saved? Or is baptism a part of salvation? Is it the means by which a person is saved? These are very important discussions that people are having. But I'm going to tell you straightforward that if you understand 
the history and purpose of baptism before John the Baptist, then it is very easy to go through the scriptures and see precisely what is taking place. Without any confusion whatsoever, you can have a clear understanding of this subject and then we can address these questions. Then we will be able to address these questions because if I try to address these questions first, then it's very easy to just get into a discussion of opinion and not deal with the facts not deal with the history and the foundation and the real issues that people would have understood during the time of the Lord Jesus, but has been forgotten since then simply because people do not have an understanding of Pharisaical Judaism. This is very important to recognize that without a clear understanding of Pharisaical Judaism, it is very difficult, if not impossible, to understand what is described in the scriptures. And I have given many examples of this. For example, the healing of the Jewish leper, the healing of the man who was born blind. I've given many examples concerning this. When Jesus said, do what they say, but do not do what they do. I've given many explanations in previous programs concerning this subject of understanding Pharisaical Judaism and the history of Judaism and the beliefs that people had when Jesus was ministering. I've given many examples of that, and this is definitely no exception. Do not underestimate the importance of what I am telling you, that if you do not understand the history of baptism before John the Baptist, you will not understand the subject of baptism at all. And so that's what I'm going to do, is I'm going to start by explaining the history of baptism. Now, I believe that the appropriate time to refer to, to begin this subject, is the Maccabean Wars. The subject of baptism really begins with the Maccabean Wars, and the effect of the Maccabean Wars, what happened afterwards. And I know this might sound a little surprising, but it really does go back this far. It goes back to around 167 to 164 B.C., In 167, the Maccabean Wars began. In 164 B.C., Jerusalem was retaken by the Maccabees, and the temple was cleansed and purified, and we have a celebration that we have every year to remember what took place at that time. That is the celebration of Hanukkah, or the Feast of Dedication. The miracle of Hanukkah was a very important miracle, and the festival that was instituted after that is a festival that has been celebrated ever since by the Jewish people. Even the Lord Jesus observed the festival of Hanukkah that is described in the New Testament and the Gospels. It is a very important part of Judaic history, and this is the beginning of the subject of baptism. This is where I'm going to start. Now, I'm definitely not going to give you a complete explanation of the Maccabean Wars and what took place to establish the festival of Hanukkah. I have done another series of programs on this subject. They are titled The Miracle of Hanukkah, and you can download those programs for free from my radio archive on the Internet. You can find that at livinggodministries.net, or I can send some CDs to you if you would like. There are two CDs. There are four programs total, and I give a complete history of Hanukkah, the circumstances that started the war, the circumstances that ended the war. I go through the entire history of that so that you can have a clear understanding of what was taking place. And so I'm going to refer you to those programs in order to have the historical foundation up to that point. 
But in this program, I'm going to do a continuation of those programs and start with what happened after the war was won. What happened after the war was won, after the Maccabeans overthrew Antiochus IV, who was the Syrian ruler who was oppressing them, What happened was that they established a sovereign country. They established an independent country. They lived in freedom and had no other country overruling them in any way at all. They were free until around 63 BC. It was 63 BC when the general Pompey conquered Judea and oppressed the Jewish people with taxation. It was then that the Romans took power over Judea, but before that time, between the time of 164 and 63 BC, for about a hundred years, the Jewish people were a free people. They lived independently of other nations. They did not have to pay taxes to anybody else. They were able to keep their own wealth. They were able to build their own lives, and they did not have to share their labor or their wealth or their productivity with anyone else. Now, when the Maccabeans won the war and the Hasmonean dynasty was put in place, what the Jews did was they asserted their national identity by sending out ambassadors to other countries. This was a very important step that they took, and it was an unusual step. It was not something that had been done before. This was a unique thing that they did. They sent out ambassadors who represented the nation of Israel to other countries. And they set up embassies in other cities and other countries. And by setting up embassies and putting ambassadors there, they had representatives there who could interface and interact with other governments and say, yes, we are a free sovereign people, but we are not going to be isolationists like we were once before. We are going to open up our country to other countries and we will engage in trade with other countries. We will engage in dialogue with other countries. We will have representatives and when other countries recognized these ambassadors, when other countries recognized the embassies where they were dwelling, this was a way of other countries recognizing the independence of Israel. This was a very important step that the Israelites took, the Hasmoneans took, during this time in history. When they set up these embassies and they sent these ambassadors, then there was dialogue with the other countries. And through this dialogue, they had a lot to talk about. One of the important things that they discussed was how was it that the Jews were able to overthrow the Syrians? How were they able to obtain their freedom? And in answering this question, in having these discussions, the Jews would expose the living God. The ambassadors would tell the other people of the other countries that they experienced true divine intervention, that there was divine intervention by the living God that provided them with their freedom. And they were able to provide evidence for that. They were able to provide the evidence of the miracle in the temple that the oil continued to burn in the lampstand even though they only had enough oil for one day but it burned for eight days. That certainly was one example, a very important example that they gave in order to show that they had experienced the divine intervention of the true and living God in their lives that provided them with the freedom 
that they were now able to experience. They also had the testimony of Antiochus IV himself. And I mentioned this briefly in the series that I did on Hanukkah, but it's found in 2 Maccabees chapter 9. In 2 Maccabees chapter 9, we have the testimony of Antiochus IV while he was being afflicted by a terrible stomach disorder that the Lord inflicted on him. Antiochus testified that there is a true and living God that this God is the God of the Jews, Antiochus even claimed that he would convert to Judaism, that he would even go and visit the holy sites of Israel, that he would recognize the true and living God, and he would subject himself to the commandments of God, as was described by the law of Moses. This is found again in Second Maccabees chapter 9. This is what he testified of just before he died, and he wrote this down in a letter, sent the letter to the Jews in Israel, and this was something that they could use in order to assert their claim that they had benefited from the divine intervention of the true and living God, and that even the king who they were fighting was willing to acknowledge and recognize the true and living God. You see, Antiochus was under the authority of the Romans. He was under Roman authority, and he paid taxes to the Romans. He was accountable to them. He was under their authority. And because of that, when the Jews revolted against him, the Jews not only obtained their freedom from him, but they also obtained indirectly freedom from the Romans. So they sent their ambassadors to the Romans in order to assert their claim that they were a free people. And they gave them the testimony of Antiochus himself that they were the beneficiaries of the divine intervention of the living God. And the Romans had better pay attention to that also. Otherwise, they also may come under the divine judgment of God, just as Antiochus was subjected to the divine judgment of the living God. These were the circumstances. And this is also why the Romans were hesitant to assert any authority over Israel. It took them a 100 years to do that. And they eventually did. And, of course, they were in power When the Lord Jesus came, they were the ones who executed him by crucifixion. But what's important to recognize right now is just the fact that there were ambassadors who were there in Rome and in other countries who were testifying of the living God. Now, what would happen when they would testify of the true and living God? Some of the people would hear about this testimony. They would hear about the miracles that were performed. And those who had an interest in divine things, those who would have an interest in religious ideas, those who would have an interest in knowing of a God, would hear about this and they would want to believe in this God. They would want this God to be a part of their lives and they would want to be a part of his life, of his activities, of what he was doing. So not only would they hear the testimony of what happened there in Israel, they would also want to participate and be blessed in a similar way, if possible, as the Jews were. These were the circumstances that resulted from the Maccabean Wars, from the miracle of Hanukkah. Now, if these people wanted to believe in the true and living God, if they wanted to be the recipients of the blessings that were promised by the law, if they wanted to participate in what the true and living God was doing, if they wanted to perhaps experience similar divine intervention in their lives, who knows what their motivation might have been truly. 
But if they wanted to participate, then they would have to go to the ambassadors and speak with the ambassadors about this because they were the representatives of Israel. They would need to go. And this is what happened. They went to the ambassadors. The people would go to them and they would say, hey, we want to be like you. We want to believe in this God who you have, who has definitely intervened in your life. We want to know this God also. We want to experience this God in our life also. How do we believe in your God? How do we convert to be a part of the nation of Israel? This was the situation that resulted from the ambassadors going out into other nations. It was discovered that members of the other nations wanted to convert. Members of the other nations wanted to believe in the true and living God and wanted to participate in the things of Israel. That was the situation that resulted from these events. It was at this time in history, this is why I'm explaining this, it was at this time in history that the Jews became evangelistic. It was at this time that the Jews began to reach out to non-Jews to convert them to the religion that was defined by the living God through the law of Moses. This was the beginning of the Pharisees evangelizing non-Jews to make them Jews if they wanted to believe in the true and living God. These were the circumstances that began the evangelistic efforts of Pharisaical Judaism. The Lord Jesus referred to these efforts. He referred to these efforts in Matthew chapter 23, beginning in verse 15, where he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, Whoever swears by this, and he goes on and he speaks to them about their hypocrisy. Now, what I want you to understand is that the Pharisees were very sincere about their evangelistic efforts. The Lord Jesus refers to their proselytes as twice as much the son of hell as themselves, but he does that in order to exaggerate the point that people are not as successful as they think they are concerning obedience to the commandments, obedience to the law. So please understand the circumstances here. The circumstances are that Ambassadors were sent out by the Jews in order to assert their national identity after they won the Maccabean Wars, and then people began to respond to the ambassadors and the message that they were communicating that they had experienced divine intervention. And then, after that, then the Pharisees began to send out missionaries, in effect, rabbis, who would go and help people to convert because they were wanting to convert. Now, when they did this, they discovered that this could have been the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise. The Abrahamic promise was given in Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, where it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. They looked at this promise that was given to Abraham, and they believed that they were 
the fulfillment of this promise. That's what they believed and why they became very enthusiastic about traveling land and sea just to make one convert because they assumed that they had found a way to be blessed. They believed that they had found a way to be blessed because they were obedient or they believed that they were obedient. They believed that they had found a way to be obedient to all of the commandments. This was something that they had been working on for centuries since the Babylonian captivity. And they believed that the winning of the war was God's validation. This is important to understand. They believed that their winning of this war, that because they won this war, because of the divine intervention in their lives, they believed that God validated their beliefs. That's what they believed. They believed that God was validating their apparent success in becoming obedient to all of his commandments. And so they believed that they were the recipients of all of the blessings that were described by God in Deuteronomy chapter 28 and a number of other places in the scriptures, they believed that they had accomplished that and so they wanted to go out into the world and help others to accomplish this also. That was their motive. This is what was driving them and so they took the position that they were fulfilling the Abrahamic promise that all of the families on the earth would be blessed because they were going to go out and teach all of the families on the earth how to be obedient to all of the commandments in the way that they felt that they had accomplished, and through that, everyone would be blessed, and they would be the fulfillment of this promise that was given to Abraham. Now, of course, the fact of the matter is is that Jesus was the fulfillment of this promise. All of the families of the earth can be blessed. They are blessed. They are blessed because of what Jesus did for them. And if they will receive the free gift of eternal life that he is offering to them, then they can be the recipients of all of the blessings in heavenly places. Those are the true blessings that our God is dispensing upon the people here on earth. Not the physical blessings that were promised in the law, but the spiritual blessings that are promised according to the new covenant. The Lord did not come to bless our flesh. He came to bless our spirit and our hearts to transform us in such a way that we can know our God. So the Pharisees were very evangelistic because they wanted to help others to get their flesh blessed. But the real fulfillment of this promise was the fulfillment that occurred through the giving of the Messiah who has saved us so that we can know our God. And there is no greater blessing than knowing the true and living God. You've been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 383-53, Colorado Springs, Colorado. 80937 or use the donation link on our website livinggodministries.net that is livinggodministries.net